Hello and welcome to the Good Friends of Jackson Elias, a regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films and horror gaming in general. I'm Scott Dolwood. In a departure from our normal format, this is a special interview episode following on from our recent discussions of Victorian spiritualism. While these episodes went into a fair amount of the history of the subject, we were left with a few questions particularly about fraudulent mediumship. Happily, one of our listeners got in touch with us, stage magician and mentalist Sean F. Smith, who very kindly offered to walk us through some of that strange history from the perspective of stage magic. If you would like to learn more about any of the things we mentioned in this episode, please do check out the show notes at blasphemoustomes.com. It is my great pleasure to be joined by Sean F. Smith. Welcome, Sean. Hello. Thanks for having me on, Scott. Let's just start off by telling the people who you are. What's your background and what has led you to become so interested in all the weirdness surrounding Victorian spiritualism? It's one of those things where technically I've been a magician for longer than I haven't. When I was a child, I used to read almost absolutely everything I could find a habit I've not entirely managed to kick as an adult. And my grandfather had a newspaper and there was an internal spread in one of the weekend magazines of how to learn a card trick. And from that, I then essentially entirely discovered a brand new shelf of the library to entertain myself with. And for some very strange reason, I, I ended up practicing loads of things, but never actually showing my parents until I'd passed the point where I was very bad. <laughs> and so I finally showed them something when I was about 16, and they were expecting it to be absolutely terrible. And at the end, it was like, oh, how did you do that? Which is the best reaction, I will say, as, as doing magic. And then uh, when I was at university, um, established a magician society, which I believe is officially still on the books now, although the, the big freeze of the last few years has potentially shifted its, its membership slightly. Mm. And functionally through through that and spending more time essentially like operating as like semi-professional magician, attempting to like drill down into more of a niche. And essentially a lot of that was leaning towards literary things or leaning towards mostly more of the mind reading or mentalism as, as it's known in the biz, mm. partially because it involves fewer large boxes and ladies <laughs> and therefore is a lot easier to transport. But also it's just, it's quite an effective way of, splitting myself from a lot of what like the other people in my groups were doing. Mm. And as soon as you spend any amount of time doing like the mind reading stuff, it's impossible not to draw from fraudulent mediums. Mm. When I left university, my society gifted me uh, a book called Secrets with the Mediums, which was a 1913 book, I think, I can't remember, that essentially was entirely... Uh, this is how they do it all. Steal as much of it as you need. Oh, wow. And a few other things like Hiding the Elephant is quite a good book, which is primarily more about when Houdini chose to vanish a giant elephant. Oh, yes. And uh, the, the slightly better trick, um, Charles Moritz, who vanished a donkey, 
largely because most people in the audience had personally experienced donkeys, whereas most people <laughs> hadn't seen elephants. And the fact that a box was brought on with one person and wheeled off with seven definitely had no impact on how the trick was done. <laughs> it's always, always been in the background slightly. And essentially it's the, uh, how can I best make a niche for myself that I can aggressively monetize, mm. which functionally is where it came from. And I can certainly see how Victorian spiritualism would be rich inspiration for stage magic of all kinds, not just mentalism, but just mm -hmm. the sheer amount of trickery that went into it. Was there much of a connection at the time between the growth of stage magic and spiritualism in the Victorian era? Because they, they both seem to explode around the same time in Victorian England. Was that connected or was that coincidental? I think for the most part, essentially, it's coincidental. There certainly would have been a lot of like strange overlap between things. For your listeners who have seen The Prestige, mm. The Christopher Priest book, book slash film, all of the above. There was quite a little bit of people turning up at things, watching and going, oh, I could do that myself. Mm. But functionally, I think a lot of it almost was just the, the standard extra thing you got in the Victorian ages of people having time and like capacity to do things, like cities almost like being big enough in a place that there would be enough people all in one group. There's certainly a lot of like mechanical crossover of people attempting the same sorts of things. But actually, even, even then, one of the things that's worth bearing in mind that's almost quite easy to forget, typically these days we imagine like a stage magician as very smartly dressed, big top hat. Mm. That all ties back to right nearing Victoria's death itself almost with a magician called Robert Houdin. In fact, that's where Houdini took his name as a mm. as like little Houdin. And he was the first to turn up and perform politely on stage, like wearing standard evening dress. Previously, it was all this um, almost like sideshow stuff or the sort of thing that you'd see on, and in fact, the sort of thing you still see today in Covent Garden, where there's like street performances and all sorts of strange things. Mm. So almost our, our modern perception of stage magic pretty much comes almost after spiritualism, just in terms of a pure time, because both of them build up at about the same point. And although the material like shifts between the two of them, there isn't necessarily a direct like one led to the it's, it's that standard history mm. answer of, yes, all of these things are connected. No, I can't explain the connection. <laughs> but I do remember seeing that a couple of the great debunkers at the time, people who go around and show how the fraudulent mediums were doing their stuff, mm. were stage magicians at the time. I, I, I've forgotten one of the names, but the one that stuck with me was Neil Maskelyne. Yes. This seems to be part of a great tradition, doesn't it, that stage magicians... I don't know. Is, is it that they, they take umbrage to people doing this fraudulently? Or I'm just very taken with the fact that, yeah, you get all these people who fool people for a living as entertainment, who then get really pissed off that, that other people are doing it with perhaps more sinister motives. Well, exactly. Because especially if you kind of consider the, like, the true ethics of even a lot of... Um, even a lot of like magicians at the time, there's a lot of things where like, oh, we do this, but it's it's okay, it's allowed. Mm. 
there's certainly in some sense a sort of a holier than thou aspect to it in that we are almost in the way in which like you don't see it too often necessarily these days but uh, i definitely remember a while ago seeing friends of mine who had done stage acting looking down on other friends who were doing film acting because it's like oh it's not the same <laughs> so i think there's that that standard elitism that you get of any two groups that are sufficiently close. Mm. Part of it is just that almost exclusively mediums were, were preying on people mm. very much doing a thing where uh, you sometimes see it in, um, I think I last saw it in Penny Dreadful City of Angels, where a character turns up at a medium, has a reading, it's like, oh, this tells us you're cursed. We can cure your curse for an extra, however many monies. Mm. And so there's some of it in the, it is a duty. Like I'm in a, I'm in a perfect position to be able to expose these people, and it is my moral duty to do so. Part of it, I think, is is probably that that's quite a canny way of advertising yourself. In the yeah. on the far side of things, people go, ah, this. Or if if suddenly it's an idea, it's like, oh, we we need somebody who can who can actually do this for us, and will then immediately like pull to you because you're the the known name for this. I wouldn't be surprised if in some situations there was also like potentially a personal vendetta involved, especially very early on within a lot of, uh, a lot of times with like Masculine himself. Houdini did quite a bit as well. Mm. I'm blanking on the name James, somebody. James Randy. Yes. There we go. My name's full of, of, of other James R's and it's like all of them <laughs> at once trying to talk to me. And even Darren Brown. Yes, actually. Yeah. And I think in a lot of situations there were points where because of how strongly they did it at the very start, I wouldn't be surprised if there was a, a trigger for this, a reason that, oh, somebody I know has mm. experienced this, and it's like, actually, no, most people should be made aware. There will be some psychics and the like who believe what they are doing is genuine. Mm. In the same way, a, a, a friend of mine who performs who performs as a psychic comedian, the word psychic is in inverted commas, and we'll often say, like quite early on, that actually the the meaning of a thing is entirely what we connect to it. Like you could have a very near miss being hit by a car, and you could walk away saying, "Oh my god, this always happens to me. This is terrible." Or it could be a thing that sparks you, makes you think, "Well, that was close. Maybe I need to really focus on things." Mm. So, in a sense, psychics who believe themselves to be truthful are probably still providing as useful a spiritual and religious experience to any other form of religion. But also within that, you've then got a significantly higher number of direct scams mm. than you would otherwise see. And I think there's that sense of, we owe it because of our, our power in this situation is that we can reveal this, and if not us, who else? Yeah, that makes perfect sense. So with these exposures of fraudulent mediums that were carried out at the time, were there any particular ones that stuck in your mind that you've read about that were particularly either egregious or just plain entertaining for their ludicrousness? Not really. There's a lot of the stuff that kind of exists is it suffers from the... Um, the standard biographical issue of you're almost always reading this from the perspective of the person who we're who we're following mm. and so it's quite hard to tell whether or not this is just almost like an old wives tale in certain situations or if it's right yeah, yeah. been amplified for uh, for actual effect and enjoyment 
one of the things that I did find, I can't remember precisely who it was, but certain stories where often, especially if it were done like seance style, seance style was quite, hmm. there's pretty much like the, the two main splits. You've either got a stage person doing some things. Often they've been tied up to prove they can't be doing the things yes. that they are doing and they're behind a curtain. The Davenports, um, who were I think, contemporaneous with Maskelone, and in fact, who were the same route uh, that then went to um, went to found the the classical London magic shop Davenports, which sadly is no longer open um, after oh, it had right. been in the most terrifying possible tunnel underneath Charing Cross Station for many many years. <laughs> oh god! The Davenports—they were the ones who created the spirit box, weren't they? Yes, and uh, and like most of their performances would be inside, like inside either like a cupboard with a curtain or with a door in front. They were always saying, "This isn't real. We're not. Do- we're not really doing these things." Really? Oh! In many situations, especially towards the end of their lives, it was very much as a, "We are magicians here. We are performing a show." Huh. I just imagine the audience sitting there watching two boxes on a stage where there's just a variety of sounds and things being hurled out being like, this is a very good show, isn't it? <laughs> but even on the, on the flip side of things, many of the times when, when people would have been like caught and so on, they could just move to the next town over for mm. the most part. A lot of the people who would be doing this would be like itinerants themselves quite often moving between places it reminds me of Dick Swiveller in the old curiosity shop where he borrows something from someone says, I'll pay you tomorrow. I'll make a note. And the person who's with him at the time said, Oh, is that so you can go back tomorrow and remind, remind you about your paying. And he goes, no, this is to tell me what road I can't walk down now. <laughs> and I'm pretty certain that, uh, that at least a few of these people would have been doing that too. I did not realize that though, about the Davenports that they ended up presenting themselves as magicians, because I guess that line between uh, seance and well, mediums, particularly as entertainers mm-hmm. and mediums as sort of uh, spiritual conduits to the dead was always a, a blurred one anyway, in that a lot of people went to seances, from what I've read, as entertainment more than anything else. Yeah. Were the Davenports alone in that and being fairly open about, or at least for part of their career, open about the fact that they were doing this purely as entertainment? I can't remember the exact times and dates. Like I, I know which book it's in. It's not easy enough for me to find currently. It's that, it's that standard library use issue. But it is it is a point that like I don't believe they were the only ones. That I think there are quite a few others who would who were essentially performing as this is what a medium show looks like, just as a piece of entertainment, rather than it having to be we believe we are contacting the dead here. Because with the Devonports in particular, I when I was reading about what their act involved, out of all the mediums I'd I'd seen described in the various books I did for for researching these episodes, theirs seemed most like obvious stage magic. It went beyond the let's turn the lights out and obfuscate things and make a bit of a noise so you know, can't see or hear what we're doing to set things up. And you know, went to the stage of, oh yeah, okay, we'll we'll tie people up, we'll get them sitting in a box behind a curtain and you know, making noises with instruments they can't possibly touch and chucking things out and so on. It's something that really boggled me a bit that anyone might go along to a performance like that and think, 
oh yeah, yeah, this is you know, a transcendental spiritual experience rather than just mm. you know some people doing you know some fairly cool magic in a box. Yeah, and I think part of that almost is our flawed perspective on it now, in that the vast majority of people in the world today have seen some magic performed mm. either up close in a room or on television or at the end of a pier. Whereas a hundred years ago, it was significantly rarer that people would see it in a stage environment. So I, I spent 10 years as a teacher and there's a thing, I think it's like domain specific intelligence or something or domain specific recall. There's a, there's a fancy phrase for it probably by someone who's trying to sell us a book, <laughs> but it's something that's observed quite often where a skill that's very strongly known in one situation is often completely forgotten in another. So a student may be very good at maths and then in a science lesson when they need to do a little bit of maths, just completely forget mm. that actually they've got a significant amount of things. And so the, the shifting of the environment so much where most people at the time would have seen maybe performances on the street corner. Uh, they may have seen some like peer end stuff, the sort of, um, the same sort of show as you would have had like Punch and Judy or something similar. And within that situation, they go, oh yes, this is, this is conjuring. We know, we know what's going on here. And in completely separate context, it's quite common for the brain to just forget that it knows all of these things. Mm. So it does seem like a lot of the, you know, as you mentioned with the Davenports, a lot of the techniques of mediumship do echo or perhaps even were inspired by stage magic to some extent. What other techniques of stage magic were commonly used by mediums at the time? So essentially there's, there's a few different things. There's almost a, a core of like specifically when it comes to like to mentalism style magic, for the most part, you've got someone thinks of thing you reveal that you have known this thing. Mm. And my use of the past tense there is quite <laughs> important in that it's very rare that it is directly spoken aloud. Mm. It's so rare that someone will go, cool, think of an object, and then somebody immediately speaks out loud, yeah. unless there's been a lot of other things kind of setting that up in the first place. So a lot of the stuff that would have happened, there's there's an entire chapter in um, one of the classic books of, uh, of like how to be a mind-reading magician practical mental effects or practical mental magic, depending on which version you've got by Ted Anneman. And there's an entire chapter in that of spirit slates, which is oh, yeah, yeah. two slates you put together and then a ghost writes some words on the inside. So actually in a lot of cases and, and with a situation like that, you may for the most part, and almost if you imagine you can still sometimes see them like child blackboards that are maybe about the size of like a sheet of paper, often with a very heavy wooden, uh, wooden frame on it. And typically mm. then just, and especially anyone who's ever worked with slate will realize how thin it can be. You mm. do then just have an incredibly thin sheet of slate on top that will move between places. If it's not connected to things, it will just fall from section to section. And so from careful manipulation of like how you are turning something over or showing things or lifting stuff up, that will then often enable you to reveal a piece of writing that you'd previously shown to be on a blank piece but because actually you've not truly shown that bit of information. So things like that, it's hard to tell where they first came from. Mm. And again, because it's so rare that we get 
true stories of I was a spiritualist and I lied to people. It's very rare that those books got published. Mm. It's very likely that it went the other way around as well, where mediums would turn up at magic shows going, oh, we can use that. Yes. So in a lot of situations, we are certain that things have been not wildly dissimilar for, for thousands of years, mm. in that the, the very first magician, uh, either Dead Eye or Dead Eye, um, or Deddy, uh, <laughs> frankly, I, I don't know how to pronounce classical Egyptian, which I feel is is a reasonable lack of skill for me. I don't think there are many ancient Egyptians around to correct you, so I wouldn't worry too much about it. Exactly. But there's a hieroglyphic of him going in front of the pharaoh with a goose, tearing its head off, and then restoring the head mm. of the goose, which is something you still see on stage today. I saw, um, I can't remember if it was a variety show or if it was uh, something else recently where somebody did the exact same with a chicken and then mm. swapped it over where they actually restored a duck's head on the chicken and all sorts of manner of things. But essentially that works from a perspective of you have a spare head and you essentially puppet it and you just hide the actual head, which anybody who remembers geese knows that they've got quite a lot of neck that can bend to pretty much where you need them to. Yeah. And so at a very basic level, like traded over within, within like folk spaces and just kind of like passed out as an oral tradition, there are a vast majority of secret ways to do a thing. Teller of Penn and Teller, his overall summary is largely from the point of the general public won't realize the extent to which a magician will go to do something outrageously basic. Mm. It makes no sense to memorize every single card in order. But if I have done that, I can then exploit that fact. And anybody who thinks, or oh, maybe he did it this way, immediately goes, no, that's stupid. <laughs> and often that's the answer. There's another semi-famous quote, which is that... Um, Magicians guard the secret to a locked chest, where the secret is the chest is empty. <laughs> In a vast majority of cases, the thing that causes it to happen is so significantly simpler. And like one specific thing that I've seen, and again, I've, I've seen this through magic books saying how you can do seance things. So it's possible that that was created by somebody trying to replicate it. It's possible that a similar thing was seen, but essentially a, a blackboard would be held up and then a piece of chalk would move itself upon the board, and you could hear it being moved as it was going on. Um, and essentially, it was just a clip-on hand on one side of the board, the other hand holding it up was a normal hand, um, and then just with the other hand, just some writing going on the back, and then careful swapping between where you would see a thing. Very, yeah. very similar to the pulling your thumb off trick that many people learn when they were 10 there is always a moment where you can swap between two things. And mm. luckily, human eyesight is very bad in that largely, if you do a large thing, people cannot see a smaller movement you were doing at the same point. And so just from this direct position, being able to set up a thing which seems realistic, and especially if you're not, if you're not in a position where you are mistrusting and looking to catch people out, which is something that you often get with traditional magic shows where you're like, oh, I know I'm being tricked. I'm going to look for the trick. Mm. If people aren't looking for the trick, there's a lot more you can do quite obviously. And even then, half the time, if somebody does spot what's going on, they're too embarrassed to call you out on it. Yeah. 
that's not something that occurred to me, but yeah, that makes sense. I can't remember precisely who it was. It's, it's, it's masculine era. It may have been him himself at some point where, and I can't remember if it was him as a child who turned up and saw something or, or something like a child turns up on a stage to see a floating princess. And of course, when the stage lights are from the right and you can't see anything and there's this, this princess floating in midair, it's incredible. And this kid who turns up on stage and sees, oh, it's just a load of wires. But at this same point, the magician digs his arms really strongly into the like kid's shoulder and says, if you tell anybody about, about this, I'm going to fucking kill you. Mm. The child who has never heard swear words before and is shocked and everyone goes, oh my God, look at how shocked the child is. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And, and will not repeat what he's just been told for fear of repercussions. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, there's, there is a long history of, um, of essentially like leveraging social, social efforts to keep certain things hidden. And I think you touched on something else there that seemed to make a huge difference for seances in particular, as opposed to stage magic, which is lighting. The fact that most of them were done in low light or no light conditions, which must be mm. an absolute boon to anyone who's trying to do shenanigans like that and swap stuff out and you know play with props and so on. Yes. People can't see what you're doing. That's, that's like playing on easy mode. Yeah, quite a lot of things like that were then almost like sold to the to the audience or sold to the sitters in that case as this makes it harder, <laughs> where it doesn't. But by saying it makes it harder, and the brain is kind of like has no reason to reject that premise and goes, oh, of course it does. And then there's so much that responds to that. In fact, uh, like one of my favorite specific things that I've yet to turn into a stage act myself but the production of ectoplasm is just, mm. it's glorious. And essentially, for the most part, it is uh, like gauze painted with a highly, like it would be like neon paint today, um, yeah. and just like hyper-reflective that in a very dark room glows massively under the little light that you've got in there. And of course, you can quite easily stuff it into a pocket, like a very basic level. If you were in the Victorian era and someone pulled out some neon pipes in a dark room, you would think that's a ghost. And that's how they did it. Like it's at a very basic level. The sheer simplicity of a lot of that stuff, I mean, not, not just the ectoplasm, but I, I want to get back to that in a moment. But spirit faces, so like cutouts from magazines mm. that were just daubed with a bit of what well, was phosphoric acid or whatever to make them glow, mm. and you just dangle them from a fishing line. Oh, it's, yes. oh look, the, well, that's, I mean, it's just, it's the kind of thing a child would come up with, and, and yet people make careers out of it. Mm. And, and again, I think that's, that's half the reason why. There's, there's a really good uh, video from, oh, I can't remember, it's, it's an American chat show and there's a magician on and he's doing a trick for a child. And children see through things and don't yet have the whole weight of social, like, social mores to tell them when they shouldn't interrupt <laughs> someone. And so this, this person does this incredible trick, puts the thing down, and the kid's like, there's two cards there. <laughs> and they literally physically pulls them apart. And often it's it's that thing is it's such a childish reason mm. and it's such a childish tactic that in some situations children do just see through it, but adults think it must be again it's it's that um like the paradox of effect or whatever there's the, the whole sense of like why why people can't believe the JFK shooting was just carried out by one guy situation 
people assume big events must have big causes. And functionally, you can then go, oh, this is huge. And so people are looking for a big answer and won't spot a small answer, mm-hmm. even though that small answer is is objectively childish. And like the sort <laughs> of thing that you could see just in a serialized cartoon or something. It's so It's so very basic. Going back to ectoplasm for a moment, because this fascinates me. I've read stories, and I don't know whether they're apocryphal, about some mediums who would regurgitate things like gauze and cheesecloth to produce mm. the ectoplasm. Did that really happen, or is that, as I said, apocryphal? So again, I've I've probably read the same things, but in the same way that um, like modern modern biologists can infer quite a lot of things about dinosaurs from looking at the behavior of birds and crocodiles. (laughs) There are still several tricks today that involve storing a large number of things in the mouth or in the entire region, Mm. and then being able to pull them out in certain places. There's quite a, quite a grotesque, there's a a couple of, um, like it's described as like sideshow magic or sometimes geek magic for reasons. Mm like old fashioned naming types almost there's a trick called blockhead where somebody takes a long nail typically like six inches or longer um, and hammers it into their face oh yes i've seen that done at the jim rose circus sideshow back in the 90s that was yeah oh it's incredible absolutely wonderful show because people go oh my god there's no way of doing that and the solution is you take a nail and you hammer it into your face yeah and of course now that people have spent a large amount of time doing their own nasal tests I've spoken to a few musicians who work in that style and people are less impressed with that trick now because they've kind of got an awareness of just how much space there is in the nasal passage. Mm. There's a similar thing in the same genre of uh, somebody who takes a length of um, a length of thread, swallows the thread, swallows a number of needles one by one, mm. um, and then pulls from their mouth a piece of thread with all of the needles threaded onto it. It looks incredible. I know somebody who did the same with spaghetti, uh, like with spaghetti hoops, <laughs> and then pulled it out as, I think it was at the Edinburgh Fringe or something similar, um, but he did it specifically to spell out a message, uh, which was his proposal to his uh, to his now wife, um, which is just amazing. <laughs> and who says romance is dead? <laughs> exactly. Good old 50p spaghetti hoops on a line of uh, a simple thread. <laughs> but yeah, so, so functionally, like the same thing happens now. Hmm. It's very likely that they were doing the same thing there. I can't imagine it having been very good for them. Yeah. Hell, even the, like, the earliest glow-in-the-dark watches and the fact that hmm. they just hadn't quite realized that radioactive properties maybe aren't something you want to put next to your body. So situations like that. Although we don't have any more than people seeing. If I remember correctly, the techniques that a lot of the mediums used for making stuff glow wasn't radium. It was, uh, mm. it, it was phosphoric acid. So you're not going to get radiation poisoning from that, but it leads to a whole bunch of other problems. But you still don't want it in your mouth. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if it's white phosphorus, you're risking fuzzy jaw and stuff like that, which is Gosh, yeah. horrific. Yeah. I've not read any direct results of things like that. There's, it's likely that there were probably a few medical journals or something from the time talking mm. about, we keep seeing this thing amongst, amongst this group of people. We don't understand why. Yeah. But at a, a very basic level, there's a lot of room in the mouth 
um, and especially something that's that packs down incredibly small. And even then, it doesn't have to stay in there for a very long period of time. You might quite often have seen um, see a point where, like, a clown or something similar will just pull hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of tissues from their mouth, mm. and they're just bundled up very small that are then just added to the mouth immediately before you pull them out. So at the very least, it maybe has only ever been in there for a, a minute, if, if, if even that. Mm. And again, in the dark, I mean, even, even at a very basic level, if it's, if the glowing part of it is entirely tucked within something opaque, hell, you could just put it in a felt bag. Nobody is going to see that in the dark until you then pull the glowing part out. Yeah, again, it's like you say, is just how simple a lot of this stuff is once you get down to it. With mediumship, though, I guess the more sinister aspect, from my perspective at least, is the way that you know, fraudulent mediums would prey upon grieving relatives or people who wanted to speak to their loved ones. And mm. there must be a lot of crossover in the techniques that were used there and what you talked about earlier with mentalist acts. Mm. I assume that there's a lot of the same techniques involved, like cold reading and so on. Yeah, so so you've got cold reading in some sense. The things that tend to happen more often is either a few situations. There's there's the connected thing, which is hot reading, mm. which is where you reveal things to people that that you know to be true because they have told you, but they don't realise they've told you. Mm. So in some situations, especially you'd see this for like touring mediums obituaries were published fairly regularly so you could read mm. obituaries you could throw out a series of facts from those and then focus down on some information that you do know and have recalled in certain other situations you'd have parts where as people entered they'd be given uh, like a slip of paper and a pencil and be asked please write down the name of anybody that you want to try and contact today and then that gets put into a box and the boxes are surreptitiously swapped, probably during the same point where the, the stage lights come up and well, this yes. is moved over to the side for convenience. Yes. Oh, I can't remember precisely which show it was. There's um, a Darren Brown show where at the very, very end of it, it transpires that he is in a gorilla costume, despite having been on the stage very recently. And functionally, that works entirely because stage theatres have wings and there's space to do things. Mm. And people will go like, oh, there's a minor mistake. It will stop paying attention. And so in the same way, there's a lot of opportunities for somebody out back to literally swap the boxes, read through them. And in a lot of cases, people aren't just going to write down the name of somebody that they want to do, but because they believe that they're in contact with them, would probably write a message or would probably write something that that they really hope to get there. And in that case, whoever's typically like working backstage can write down in quite large chalk on a board, hold it off on the wings. And so the person on stage can just literally look off into the wings and see a huge list of these are the names of people who people in the audience want to contact. Yeah. And then from there, there's just also a lot of, a lot of like statistical variations. So rather than just like the most effective cold reading tends to be, and like when we consider it today, it's um, in the sense of like Barnum statements, mm. where something is spoken that is so general, it's almost impossible not to, not to accept it. Like uh, you can be quite outgoing, but really deep down, actually you're, you're quite, you're quite <laughs> insecure. And, and most, almost everyone in the world goes, that's true. And it's because 
you've said nothing. <laughs> nothing of nothing of yeah. any actual importance. Yeah, covering all your bases. Yeah, exactly. But then also on the flip side of things, there's just statistical likelihoods amongst a number of different things. In that you can probably predict like most people will have been older that you're trying to contact here. Mm. Most people will have been a relative. Most people, especially if they're still in the other uh, like aspects of grief, will feel that they there was more they wanted to say. Mm. In fact, most people who want that will also have had one specific thing that they wanted to say and never got round to. And again, it's in the same sense of like humans are not selfish in the sense of things, but humans are very self-centered when they're imagining things. Mm. And so even if somebody is being like another person is stood up because it's their spirit who's being contacted, or not their spirit, like the spirit of the loved person that they want to talk to. And if you're sat next to them, all of the statements that are being there could still apply to you. Yeah. But because you're being distracted by, no, they're talking to that person, you don't also then think, actually, no, that could be anyone. Because again, most people are going to be on a, like, a heightened emotional state, and most people are just waiting for their turn. Yeah, and I guess... One big difference between a medium doing something like that and, say, a mentalist act must be that the people going to see a medium are there because they desperately want to believe, and that must mm. really help with the buy-in. Yeah. There's a lot of things that almost that you can that you can gain through that, and you see it a lot when you've got uh, like aggressively manipulative religious rites taking place where it mm -hmm. won't work unless you believe enough that almost yeah. always is being used to like shame people into certain behaviors but yeah so so like the fact that people are believing but also because people do not want to be seen as a bad believer mm. in a lot of situations will just will behave more politely in a situation like if the answers are wrong they probably won't want to say no one because that would embarrass the person in charge and socially they don't want to embarrass the person in charge but also to say that it isn't working would damage their own like psychological construct of this is a thing that works yes and so if this is wrong it must mean that my ideas are wrong and the human brain is incredibly resilient to rejecting anything that might damage its own sense of like construction yeah and it also seems to help an awful lot with the fraudulent aspects of mediumship that the conditions are set up in that there are certain things you have to do to encourage the spirits or to placate them or to bring them about, which coincidentally also happen to be things that make it much easier for someone to fake these phenomena. Exactly. And the fact that it makes sense when it's being described in such a way where mm -hmm. like humans are very good at responding to stories. And if you tell a story about how, why this is relevant for this thing, but even at like a purely occult sense, the fact that they say, this is a, this is a process that makes the process easier, mm. makes the process e like from a, from a point of, okay, yes, yeah, so no, this makes sense. And typically then the, like the entirety of the situation is then able to be controlled and constructed by the people who were attempting to take advantage of that. And hell, even like it's, it is almost certain that there are a large number of people who believe what they are doing is genuine, even if they're using like fraudulent systems to do so beyond if they think that actually 
there's this, even the split between somebody who knows they're lying but thinks they're doing a good thing, hmm. which potentially could be the case. Even some people who know that they are cheating but believe that they are cheating because this is the way in which the spirits work. Certain levels, there's just a significant amount of like self-delusion possible. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that always fascinates me with, well, I guess any kind of occultism in general and religious and spiritual practices, which is the stuff that's come out of fraud, like, you know, very much like spiritualism, because we know that that was entirely based in in fraud but the fox sisters mm. admitted later in life that they made the whole thing up and renounced it all and so on but the people since then who followed in their footsteps who must have heard that who still perhaps believe that what they're doing is real yes all right you know everything that came before is fraud but suddenly you know what i'm doing yeah, maybe I'm using a few dodgy techniques, but there, there's something real to it all. And the human capacity for that, mm. I'd say, is at least as disturbing as people who are manipulating audiences or manipulating vulnerable people for their own gain. When you get to the stage where you're manipulating yourself, that's that's even scarier, I'd say. No, I agree. The fact that it's even in the face of like overwhelming evidence and and especially just the the sheer kickback that when like when the fox sisters as like aged adults were like no it was all a lie mm. everyone goes well it, it can't have been because <laughs> i've based my life on this no i mean even if it was it's correct now in a certain sense i could kind of see that response even as well and maybe this is just me being sufficiently deluded as well but I quite enjoy using tarot cards, mm. mostly because I'm a writer and often they've got pretty pictures on them. <laughs> but also on the flip side of things, any arbitrary system can then be used to draw patterns from. So mm. I've even uh, done, oh, there's probably a fancy word for dice reading, cartomancy for cards and so on. Yeah, ludomancy or something. Yeah, probably. But I've used the, uh, the room stocking guidelines from, from basic D&D. <laughs> where a one and a two is an empty room, a three and a four is a monster, a five is something special, and a six is a trap. And I've used that in the same way that you'll have like a complex tarot spread. I've just mm -hmm. rolled a number of dice, moved them into the places, and be like, cool, that we can derive things from. Typically, I'll use them as, as a way of making inspiration to then come up with another game story. But it also, it doesn't stop it still being useful and effective if people want it as like a meditative tool. And, and it is made up entirely made up like i don't think gary gygax thought I, I expect someone will use this as a way of contacting the spirits in the future in fact it would probably cause him significant emotional pain <laughs> but yeah actually i mean that reminds me of some of the weird crossovers between sort of occultism spiritualism and the creative arts that came about in the 1920s with surrealism where mm. the, the spiritualist technique of automatic writing then became a, a way of creating surrealist fiction and surrealist art. Mm. 
You then had a development of that, which was called sealed writing, which I've used myself a few times, where you basically Hmm. do automatic writing. You sort of tap into your subconscious and just let whatever random shit comes out Hmm. flow onto the page. You write it all down. And with sealed writing, the idea is what you do is you then put that in an envelope for at least a month so you've forgotten all about it, so it's gone out of your conscious mind completely. And then come back to it, take it out again and look at it and mine it for ideas, just see if there's anything in there that triggers your creative juices. And it actually really works. Yeah, there's there's something genuinely brilliant about the human capacity to spot patterns. Mm. The reason why was it pareidolia is the name for like when we see faces everywhere. Yeah, and it, again, it was it's part of the benefit of I I spent ten years as an English teacher and coming up with here's a number of foolproof ways of guarant like mining cosmic static for actual starting points of things. It's like mm. it's like I don't need to write a story. What can we write a story about? Oh, let's literally look at the first four words of each page of this book and let's see what that is. And that's the core of stuff. The arbitrary decisions there can then prompt those connections. Yeah, Edward de Bono wrote a lot about similar techniques as well as ways of mm. enhancing creativity. He was the, the man who coined the phrase lateral thinking. I remember reading a book of his ages ago called Poe, Beyond Yes and No, which mm-hmm. was sort of similar in that respect. And it's, it's just basically the very simple technique of taking any two random things, any two random words or ideas or whatever, and looking for some way of unifying them or bringing them together and seeing what that creates as uh, mm-hmm. an idea in your head. And again, it's something I've used a few times in it does actually work very simple yeah somehow he wrote a whole book out of it but yeah that's, uh, that's the bono <laughs> it's the consultant circuit it's like well i can i can spin this idea out in fact his um his uh, he's got six thinking hats each which yeah. are colored i think that is still regularly used within schools today mm. or at least it was two years ago i assume it probably still is primary schools especially where it's it's quite an effective direct way of helping people who aren't practiced in thinking in different modes do that going back to cold reading just for a moment there was something that occurred to me as you were talking about that which is one of the best representations i've seen in fiction of cold reading was from uh, william gresham's novel nightmare alley which was Hmm. filmed a couple of times including fairly recently by uh, guillermo del toro we do actually have an episode on that coming up soon The protagonist in that is a a fraudulent medium. And he, at one stage, he does his first ever cold reading of this police officer who comes in to raid the sideshow carnival where he's working. And he's been taught a few cold reading techniques by uh, a former mentalist who's working at the carnival. And he later explains to the other carnies what he did. And he's going through the details of all the various physical bits of evidence that he picked up from the man, from his clothing, from the state of his shoes, from his jewelry, from his stuff like that. Mm. And how he spun it together into a really quite accurate picture of uh, the man. And I, I remember being really impressed with that as a bit of fiction. But what I couldn't get my head around was whether anyone actually has the skill or the insight to do that in real life. So to some extent, 
the answer is yes, but it's it's nowhere near as effectively as as that. Mm. There's a lot of like minor things that are still considered quite personal that you can spot. So like the, the very obvious one is 10% of the country are left-handed. Mm. And you can typically tell that if they're wearing a watch or a belt, because it will be obvious from the way in which that has been tied. Ah. It's the looking for the details that enables you to make certain certain assumptions and certain kind of like spots things where like if somebody has a wedding ring on for instance mm-hmm. it informs a certain amount of information about yourself beyond that i suppose if if it were within a situation where where you were just trying to convince someone of your powers and of your skills there's probably more like solid reaches people will take with that the same way that um again human memories are very bad and if you throw out five things that are semi-true and two of them are, are actually turn out to be spot on, yeah. the audience remembers the two things, not the three misses. Yes. And typically also because you then, once you're getting, essentially the, the, the technical way to be effective when doing cold ring is to essentially come up with a, a large thing that you think is the case. And then you just drip feed small things, all of which must be true if that bigger thing was the case. Mm. And so if you've worked out, oh, they're probably from Southampton, however you might have done that, you can then say, I get the impression that that you're from a seaside town. And they're like, yes. So in fact, like a port town, someone with with that with actual like industrial impacts. They're like, yes, that's true. And quite an old one, almost <laughs> not directly. And then because you already know the big thing and then you're just dripping the small things. Yeah. It means that you can put more like theatrics into the stuff that is correct. And essentially, even though it won't be quite as like aggressively well detailed, it's the it's it's the Sherlock Holmes statement of like by a man's gate you can tell who he is. Yes. In which there's a crumb of truth. My favorite aspect of that is that forensics in the way in which we imagine it now didn't really exist until Conan Doyle made it up. Mm. Conan Doyle himself being a an absurd man to think about when it comes to spiritualism. <laughs> yeah, God, yes. He was very good friends with Houdini and yet also deeply believed in all of these things. <laughs> yeah. Like, and wrote a story about a man who was so insightful he could spot when lies were there. It's yes. it's brilliant. Like oh. but but again almost that's a, a perfect example of somebody who has the cognitive capacity to understand just how deep and developed certain things are, but yet will also completely ignore that in their own life. Like the level of scientific detail where it comes to describing how the, like how the Hound of the Baskervilles is made and then forgetting that, you know, all of those facts when you think about like the Cottingley fairies and be like, no, that must be true. I'm like, you've literally (laughs) written a book about the same sorts of things. It's it's quite incredible. I do remember reading, I can't remember the source, but a while back that intelligence is no defense against being conned. That Mm. the majority of people who are defrauded uh, by confidence tricksters aren't stupid that you know it's the manipulation bypasses a lot of our cognitive faculties in such a way that you know it doesn't matter how clever you are it taps into something more primal than that yeah and especially with a lot of situations where you have like classic grifts 
So like the um the Shell and P game. Mm. In fact, I, I saw it about five years ago just outside the Tate Modern. Like it still exists, or like Final oh, Lady yeah. where you've got the three cards. And these things have just been the same for hundreds of years. And so people who are teaching you, here's how you do it. And of course, in those situations, you've just got a much wider, like a casual observer would look and think, oh, there's one person there. And typically you've got seven or eight. You've got like a couple of heavies in case things kick off. You've Mm -hmm. got a few people who turn up and successfully win. So you can see, oh, it, it is possible to win. But no, the person who's won, is also involved in the scam. Yeah. It is like in the same way that um, very intelligent people can't necessarily immediately like pick apart a very complex dish that they're eating. Or like if you're not specifically trained in cooking, you might go, wow, this is incredible. How is it made? I don't know. And partially it's just that the, the sheer weight of like human history and knowledge has built up and has passed on and has worked through these things. and one person being clever isn't going to be enough to to dodge that because you're not the first clever person who's tried to be tricked by this. And it's mm. just essentially the the scam has evolved to be able to like respond to each of these possible defenses against it. And sort of related to that, uh, going back to the idea of seances as entertainment, what do you see as being the fundamental difference between these Victorian entertainment seances and the conjuring acts at the time? I think part of it is that although there is a clear moral distinction between people who are, in a very basic sense, theatre is trickery in that Mm. we are not really seeing the lives that we claim to see. And magic in that same sense and conjuring is just almost like um an, <laughs> it's more intellectual <laughs> but that it's it's more like intelligently focused rather than emotionally focused in that part of the entertainment there is is in being intellectually fooled and when it comes to like true séances at least where everybody taking part believes it to be a genuine attempt to do things for the most part i think the biggest difference is the audience People who are interested in going to see a show aren't necessarily the same people who are interested in going to see real things. To use a, a fairly crude analogy, it's, it's the difference between people who will watch boxing versus like wrestling. Mm. Not the Olympic sport wrestling, but like the WWE style, where mm. one of them might be more fantastical, but there's a certain thing of people wanting to wanting to see something that is real but is entertaining to watch. Humans can watch anything. The amount of um, the amount of hours I've spent watching birds, mm. it's possible to find enjoyment in in very basic things that we believe to be true. <laughs> this is also the part where I tell you birds are fake as well. They were made up in the nineteen thirties. <laughs> but it is a point of um, I don't think the same people, for the most part, are interested, and that's partially why magicians who are like wait they're, they're kind of doing the same stuff as us i wouldn't be surprised if some people thought they're gonna like gazump us and steal our crowds and they're just selling to completely different people mm. i think that's the main distinction i do think that i mean in in the same sense there's probably just as much fraud going on within magic of i this person the most rewards of this hell you've got 
entire people. William Robertson, I think is his name, um, who performed as Chung Ling Su. Oh yes. Again, to, to go back to the, um, to go back to the prestige, he appears on scene at one point. He's the, the guy who produces a completely full goldfish bowl. In fact, with him in particular, he, he famously did, did a bullet catch, the, um, the most fatal of all magic tricks. It's probably not caused the most, the most damage at the moment is caused by, um, people doing the whole smash and stab where you've got a spike under a cup and the cups are mixed around. Oh gosh. A friend of mine who I saw on Sunday did it at a show and injured himself. And it's like, of course, of course you can injure yourself. Like it's a matter of time. How? But with bullet catch, it's uh, it, it obviously it's a bit worse. But uh, Chung Ling Su was was shot by a bullet unexpectedly, and at that point cried out in English for the first time. And that was the point where the vast majority of his audience suddenly realised he wasn't actually a Chinese man. Yes. And again, much of that is he was wearing elaborate, like and genuinely a very good silk costume and you were mostly seeing him very far away in a theater that was very brightly lit so so i don't think most audiences there were foolish but he was conning people into bringing him more people by saying this isn't just another magic show this is the secrets of the audience that you should come and watch yeah but i mean i, I suppose in in the long run it's like the biggest difference between people visiting a true séance in the sense that everyone thinks it's real versus going to see a staged version is largely in who wants to see what. Mm. And even though there's probably a significant moral undercoming from that, I often find if somebody is in a position of saying that person is way less moral than me, I'm always reluctant to trust too strongly if somebody is trying very much to pull somebody else down. And it's a little bit less awkward now where, because of global media, the ability for people to see things in perpetuity, like there's videos you can watch on a number of different websites of stuff that has been proven. Now it's largely from a perspective of functionally like investigative journalism. I think that uh, the stuff that Randy's doing, uh, the stuff that like Darren Brown's doing, the stuff that Masculine was doing is essentially a journalistic expose rather than just a case of being like, oh no, that's fake. You should come to see me instead. Mm, yes. Which definitely seems, seems quite self-serving. Yes. And one last question then to tie all this up. With all this debunking that's gone on at various spiritualist phenomena, are there any phenomena that you've encountered or read about that have never been adequately explained by stage magic or is everything that's documented as having happened in seances just to this day and age blindingly stage magic it's hard to tell in that and typically it's one of the things that i'll say where probably every single one of my friend knows that i'm a magician hmm. if we see a magic show together about 99 percent of the content i will know precisely how it's done I will know who has been the person that's developed and taught the trick and so on. And in the situations where I don't know, most often I'll be able to work out, well, I would do it like this. Hmm. And a lot of the stuff like classical spiritualist tricks have almost been described in that way where somebody who hasn't been doing it has said, this is what I would have done. There are a few situations where people who have done things overtly like who had done things as a con 
and then have later gone on to reveal it. The biggest example of that I can think of is probably The Expert at the Card Table, which is a, a tiny little book by a man who was a con artist who would con people with cards. And the book is written, this is what we did. These are all of the different things that happen. Um, mm. And again, that was written almost as a way of like massaging his own guilt of being like, okay, I, I've been bad, but if I tell everybody else what to avoid, that, that makes up for it. Mm. As far as I know, there isn't an extensive one written from the perspective of a fraudulent medium. Because functionally, we can watch from the outside and say, okay, well, I know how that could be done. There are potentially still some things that we don't know exactly what, like what process or what tools directly were used. But there isn't really anything that stands out as no one can manage that. Unless you kind of go back even later, there's a famous trick in magic, the Indian rope trick. Oh, yeah. yeah. Where a fakir would be so spiritually controlled that they could make a rope stand on its end like like a snake being charmed, enough that a young boy could climb up it mm. and vanish at the top. Mm. And no one knows how that's done at all. There's a number of ways that people could do it in a theater, but typically this was always done outside. Mm. And so like that's one of the, the the great things that have been lost that's kind of close. But as far as I will remember, I don't think there was anything quite that spectacular shown in any of the seances. Although it would make quite a, quite an effective way of accessing the spirit realm if you snake charm a rope to climb up into it. <laughs> I think that might have to be the core of my next scenario, actually. <laughs> yeah, that would be a hell of a closing act, wouldn't it? Yes. <laughs> oh, well, thank you very much, Sean, for joining me. That's been a fascinating discussion. If people want to find out more about your work or see you perform, uh, how can they learn more? Uh, so the easiest way is probably via my website, which is bookshawnsmith.co.uk, uh, partially because as a performer, I mostly focus on books, also because it subtly embeds a command in the statement there, telling me <laughs> that you should book me. Yes. If you're interested in uh, like games-related things, the easiest place to find me is probably on itch.io, where it's seanfsmith.itch.io, or various things through drive-through as well. Typically, especially if you're in the if you're on the Discord server for the good friends, then you can just search Sean F. Smith and you'll probably find me and are likely to respond at least at some point. But yeah, that's that's probably the optimal ways of uh, of spotting me. And actually, if you are a Patreon subscriber to the point that you have the blasphemous tomes, um, I believe <laughs> yes. it's in edition three or four. Uh, I wrote yes. The Stranger on the Style. Yes. Uh, so you may already have my work in your house. Um, <laughs> but yeah, that's, that's largely how to find me. I deleted Twitter this week. Uh, so you used to find me there, but, but no longer. I got bored. Understandable. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, thank you again, Sean. That's been fantastic. Thanks for having me on, Scott. It's been, a, it's been great to geek out about a topic that I haven't managed <laughs> to for about three years now. So very happy with that. Blasphemous Tomes.com mm.